Hi, I'm Derek John, executive producer of Narrative Podcast at Slate. And I'm pleased to announce that Apple Podcasts has chosen to recognize one of our shows, Slow Burn, Roe v. Wade, as show of the year for 2022. Slow Burn, Roe v. Wade examines the factors that led to the historic 1973 Supreme Court ruling giving women legal access to abortion. It's a story many people think they know, but it turns out there are a lot of surprises. Every step of the way, there seemed to be a new revelation. Our fourth and final episode wrapped just days before the current Supreme Court overturned Roe with its Dobbs decision. But now we've decided to release one more additional episode. If you're at all familiar with Slow Burn, you know each season we revisit a moment from the past that resonates strongly with the present. We seek out the people who are there so we can bring their stories to life through interviews, archival tape, and sound design. And if you're at all familiar with Slow Burn, you know that we don't normally talk much about ourselves. In this case, we're going to make an exception. Listeners have been asking us about the timing of our season and how we found the stories for Slow Burn Roe v. Wade. And so, to celebrate being named Show of the Year, we're going to give you a little peek behind the scenes. Hope you enjoy. Over 50 years later, I still don't know exactly what happened to me. It's always women who have the abortions, but it's always men who make the laws. And that stark reality hit me like a punch in the gut. What do you think that people tend to misunderstand about the lay of the land before the decision? The answer is lots. Frankly, when they decided the case, they were all of one mind that they had solved this issue once and for all. And I actually remember Dad saying, we will not live to see Roe overturned, but you kids will. I'm Josh Levine. I've been at Slate for 19 years, uh, since before we did podcasting. And I got involved in narrative audio with Slow Burn as an editor. I hosted one of our seasons on David Duke. I'm now also the host of a narrative show called One Year. Hi, I'm Samira. I am one of the producers and have worked in oral history and sound-rich features. And so uh, I was really honored to be uh, a part of it. I'm Derek John. I lead the narrative podcast unit here at Slate. And uh, before that, I was in public radio for a long, long time. And uh, I have always, my my favorite work has been these kind of deep dive, uh, sound rich documentaries. I'm Sophie Summergrad. I am an associate producer on Slow Burn and our, some of our other narrative podcasts at Slate. Uh, before coming to Slate, I worked in TV production with a focus on documentary uh, subjects. Hi, I'm Susan Matthews, and I am the host of season seven of Slow Burn on Roe v. Wade. I started at Slate about six and a half years ago. I was a science journalist before I came on, and I came on as the science editor. And then I started working on our jurisprudence coverage and our politics coverage. So I first started thinking about doing a slow burn season on Roe v. Wade or just thinking that Slate should, basically in between season one and season two of the show. And I'm really curious if Josh remembers this, but I remember it really clearly. So I know that it happened. Season one had wrapped up. They probably had already picked what season two was going to be about. But I remember thinking, you know what a really good topic would be, would be Roe v. Wade. It was around the same time as Watergate. And 
I felt like it had the same situation as Watergate, where, like, I knew what it was, but I didn't understand what it had been like to live through. So I remember slacking Josh and being like, we should think about doing a season of Slow Burn on Roe v. Wade in probably, like, I don't know, 2017, 2018. I can't remember when the show launched. Josh, do you remember that? What did I say? You said, (laughs) in classic Josh fashion, you said, huh, good idea. Maybe I'll add it to the list. (laughs) It was a good idea. And uh, I'm sure that I was uh, feeling extremely enthusiastic, but just being low-key, like I usually am. (laughs) And so the timing here was that it was September of 2020, and Justice Ginsburg had just passed away. And we were leading up to an election in November, but um, Amy Coney Barrett was being confirmed to be on the court. When the president offered me this nomination, I was deeply honored. But it was not a position I had sought out and I thought carefully before accepting. And so I was in my house alone watching the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings, and I just had this feeling of like, this is the decision. Like, this is the decision happening right now. Like, the fact that she's going to be on the court is is what's going to set all these other events in motion. That doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled. But descriptively, it does mean that it's a case, not a case that everyone has accepted and doesn't call for its overruling. I don't okay, think so here's and I had this feeling of, like, almost total helplessness as a journalist. I didn't know how to tell the story in a way that was going to be interesting or relevant to people. Abortion is such a polarized topic in our country. It's really, really hard to say anything new about it. It's really hard to feel like you're covering any new ground. It's incredibly difficult. And so what I thought was I went back to that idea that I had had a couple of years before that I had slacked Josh about because I think that what Slow Burn does is it adds humanity to these stories that we think that we understand, but we actually don't. And so when I was thinking about how we could possibly break new ground here, how we could let people know what was coming, how we could do something that affirmed what an important subject this was without necessarily requiring women to beg, basically, I thought that we could go back to history. And so it was during those hearings where every night, like I said, I was alone in my house, I just was like reading things and researching things and like it's this one is kind of lame, but I started by just reading the entire Wikipedia page of Roe v. Wade. I do that sometimes to just like get the jumping off points to what to dig into next. And it was on that original page that I actually found the first reference to Shirley Wheeler. And I tried to look for modern things about her, and I couldn't find anything. During the day, I was covering this hearing, and at night, I was basically just absorbing as much information as I could to think about what it would be that we would explore. And so that's how I wrote that pitch. What I remember most about the pitch was the depth of research and the depth of feeling behind it. You often get one without the other. And Susan, you had done so much work to channel everything that so many people have been feeling the last couple of years and also bringing so much stuff to light that I hadn't um, known about that um, would help demonstrate that this is a flesh and blood issue and not just one that's decided by people in robes and courtrooms. 
So the next step was expanding the team. So I want to shout out uh, a former editor of Slate here, actually, Laura Bennett, who really, really believed in this story. Um, And so she submitted um, an application for a grant from the International Women's Media Foundation. And I will just never forget this. (laughs) Laura and I were on an interview with the people from IWMF like the week that SB8 was coming down in Texas. And that was the very first law that said in the state of Texas, women cannot get an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. And if they do, they can be fined $10,000, like kind of by whoever they want. So it was it was a really extreme law, both in how it was enacted and in the limitation that it put on when abortions could happen. And it was like as there were like like on Monday of that week, everybody had kind of been like, Texas isn't going to really do this, are they? And then Texas really did it. And then we were on this call being like, so we think that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned at the end of this year. And here's our podcast idea. And here's our timing. And like, we'd really like to do this. So we got the grant. And in October of 2021, we were able to bring on Samira. And I was happy to join. I uh, similarly read the outline and was really drawn in uh, by how Susan talked about the project. Uh, You know, I think uh, approaching it in a new way, one that uh, feels uh, fresh. I felt like in really reading her outline, uh, I could, I can hear some of the voices and I can uh, sense some of the stories um, brewing. And so it got me really excited to join the team. One of the early things that I remember about Samira was that she came on and was like, all right, we're, we're going to be organized. And it's so funny because Samira says she's not a very organized person in the rest of her life. But as a producer, she's a, an absolute saint in terms of like making things make sense. And so we were doing that basically up until February when we were joined by the rest of the team. Yeah, I can jump in. Um, so I had... At the end of 2021, I was working on the previous season of Slow Burn, uh, Slow Burn Season 6, about Rodney King and the L.A. riots. And when I heard that we were doing Roe for uh, Slow Burn Season 7, I was like, oh, this is a perfect Slow Burn season because it's just a classic case of you hear Roe v. Wade and you think you know the story. And again, talking to Samira and Susan, who had like been pouring over this stuff for the last few months, I was like, oh, I know nothing about this. I really I know the top line, but I don't know the stories that led us here. I was so excited to dive in with them and pick out these small pieces of history that actually help tell the story in a much larger and more intimate way. And so I was working with with you guys, Samira and Susan on all this stuff. And then I think, Derek, that's when you joined. Yes. So I was put in charge of the unit. I was handed the keys to this uh, Cadillac, if you will. And I think one of the first things I, I, I was told was like, oh, and by the way, we're doing Roe v. Wade for the next slow burn. Um, and I will say, you know, as someone who had been kind of following what was happening on the court, it was just like, oh, my gosh, this is an incredible opportunity. What a great idea. Thank goodness Josh Levine said yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so so anyway, you know, I, I could see from the pitch and the the outlines, like you know, we just had our our hands on an incredible story, tons of like original reporting, and, and I think like like everyone has said, um, you know, you sort of have grown up just thinking that this this debate this this issue was just sort of like set in stone, and it was like you thought you knew it, and it was never going to change. I grew up in Kansas, um, and I remember, you know, like seeing the billboards of like bloody fetuses and 
just like the summer of mercy and all the activists. And I'd always just kind of wondered, like, how did we get here? Um, and when I started to see like, oh, wow, you mean Republicans actually used to be more supportive of abortion rights than, than Democrats? It was just, I feel like you could start to see the, the kind of history came into focus. Like, wow, we have a real opportunity here to, I think, surprise people and tell these stories that folks have forgotten. This is just going to be a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's going to be a challenge to kind of crystallize it and condense it and distill it into four episodes. But I was just super excited to, to jump in. And Derek, what you said about the feeling of being surprised and how important and exciting that is when you start off a project and some of the puzzle pieces are starting to fill in. Because what we don't want to do with any of these stories when we're going back through history is to kind of comfort the audience and have them think, oh, what I believe is true, has always been true, and has never been complicated. And so there were so many little moments, and um, the team did such a great job of picking out stories that got at the complexity of an issue that has bedeviled Americans for generations, and the kind of strange alliances, surprising viewpoints um, that you can hear in each episode of this story. That was really important to me that I wanted to make people not not only um, feel these sort of flashes of I can't believe I didn't know that, but oh, I didn't I didn't know that people thought that or that things had changed or what why did things change? And to have those questions kind of be asked and be answered over the course of all these episodes um, was really important. Okay. So, by February, we had the team in place, and I knew from like the first time I saw her name on that Wikipedia page that one of the episodes that I really wanted to do was Shirley Wheeler. And Samira and I had, had talked about it a lot, had dug into it a lot, and had not really found that much primary source material or like even that much material in general. But we, her story is so incredible. She's thought to be the first woman who was convicted of manslaughter for getting an abortion. The fact that the judge tells her what he does and how she responds, like the story to me is just incredible. And it was the middle of February. And I remember this because I was up in very northern New Hampshire in a ski cabin. I was not in the office. Uh, I was up in this ski cabin and we had like one of our first calls as a team. And Samira and I were like, we really, we really want to do this. Like we've kind of outlined it. We're struggling to find the tape, but like this is really important to us. Like we know that this is the best first episode for the season. And Derek and Josh just both came in and they were like, yeah but what tape do you have? And we were like, oh, like we have one interview with an academic. We have have like a couple of things. And they were both just like, we understand that that this means a lot to you, but you have one week and you need to find more tape. And at the end of this week, based on how much tape you get, that will be how we decide whether or not we can do this this, uh, episode. And so that kind of set off the pace of just like, this is what we're doing. I set up a recording studio in the closet in the bathroom of that ski cabin. And we just started doing so many interviews with anybody that we could find. Um, 
And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that eventually we were talking to academics and we actually kind of realized that we had started to learn to know more about Shirley Wheeler than like even people who had referenced Shirley Wheeler in their books. And so the thing that we found out that was just really challenging was that there was no expert on Shirley Wheeler. Like we became the experts on Shirley Wheeler. And I want to hear, I mean, now I want to toss it to to Derek and Sophie and particularly to Samira to talk about how we ended up actually fleshing out the episode and the heroic work that Samira did, like contacting a million people like via Facebook, via all kinds of different means to to get people who actually knew and remembered Shirley. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just going with uh, what we could find in newspapers, like who were writing those stories, like who was around, even like trying to find brief, you know, mentions, oh, she attended this rally, who was there at the rally, you know, kind of just going in and and trying to find the breadcrumbs of uh, who may have, um, you know, known Shirley. Yeah. Samira, tell us how you found Robert Wheeler. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. So, I mean, the whole time we're just thinking, wouldn't it be great to get Robert Wheeler on tape? Uh, He was there. He was the supportive, um, you know, boyfriend of Shirley Wheeler throughout this all. We see these pictures of him and Shirley. He's decked out in, you know, a mustache and long hair, really of the times. Like, how do we find him? Um, these newspaper articles did a great job of outlining uh, his, uh, you know, interests and hobbies. They said he was a painter. He liked to read books. He was uh, he had an interest in taxidermy. Um, and I don't know. I just like I couldn't. There's so many Robert Wheelers in Florida. I had no idea if he was still in Florida, but you know, sort of inputting Robert Wheeler, uh, you know, taxidermy artist, you know, all this kind of stuff, and just through happenstance of taxidermy artist Robert Wheeler, I was able to find um, a website and uh, with a picture of an older Robert Wheeler that had the mustache that had like the same features, and I just remember. Um, posting it onto the Slack and being like, guys, I, I think this is Robert Wheeler. Exactly. Like, this has to be him. <laughs> and he was. He was the Robert Wheeler that we were looking for. You know, I think what I ended up doing, I found his sister's number. I call her. I think she's at the grocery or something. She's like, oh, uh, yeah, that's my brother. Um, I'll give him your his your your number and he'll call back. And so uh, once he gave me a call back, um, that's when it sort of started this whole thing. And uh, he's someone who, you know, once you get him on the phone, it's like hard to, you know, get off. He's like someone who's very chatty. And it just felt like, wow, like somebody who's close to this um, story who could give us some of the some of the details of what happened. Um, and it was great to get um, just hear his voice on the other end. I lived just a few blocks away from the ocean. There's you know a picture of me with my surfboard and I was constantly surfing as much as I can get out there. I have a picture of Cheryl in a, a plaid skirt and black blouse. She has boots on. She has a real nice smile in that. And the photo that's the art for the season is a photo that he took of Shirley. And for me, that's when so much of this came to life was seeing that image and also hearing Robert talk about 
Shirley and what she went through, the challenges that they went through as a couple. And, you know, a lot of the time, and I was in that meeting when uh, Susan and Samira were so passionate about telling Shirley's story. And the reason why they were so passionate was because back then, when, when all of this was happening, for people on the, you know, really pushing the co- the cause of abortion rights, that she was this person who had something really horrible and traumatizing happen to her, being convicted of manslaughter. And to be able to tell that story, you need to tell the story of who she was and how she felt and what she was going through. And so there was just a gap in knowledge, like academics didn't know. There was some stuff in newspapers, but not necessarily enough for us to really um, evoke who Shirley was in listeners' minds. And so when all of that started to click in, when you have this interview on tape, when you're able to listen to it, when you're able to hear him, when you're able to um, hear hear from a reporter who covered her trial, when you're able to hear people chanting at a rally, defend Shirley Wheeler, then all the elements are in place to make an amazing episode that really realizes the vision that Susan and Samira had from the very beginning. I have been labeled a criminal by this society. The state of Florida is the criminal, not me. (laughs) I am appealing my conviction because I would hate to see another one of my sisters go through the living hell that I have. Thank you. I don't know why, but hearing Shirley's voice for the first time, there's some power in, um, you know, hearing someone's voice uh, who basically said, no, I'm not going to do this and made a stand uh, and also had a, a kind of timbre of voice that you wouldn't necessarily think or expect. I, 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 and I think with all the voices in this series, I think it, it makes the whole, uh, you know, narrative and the issue um, real and close to heart and really powerful. Yeah. And I just want to say there may have been that, that moment early on where Josh and I were like, wait, how much tape do you have? Yeah. You got to go get some tape. Um, the team got some tape and then some. Um, and I think it was, you know, not only tracking down like the Robert Wheelers of the world, which was not easy. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't think, I think you've only heard half of it. I mean, I think he lived in this like rural town in Georgia and like we had to have a producer drive like two and a half hours just to even get there to, to tape sync his, his audio. Um, but it was just like, you know, Sophie finding this incredible archival tape uh, from th- this group called, called Wonak, which is where, Shirley Wheeler like first spoke out um, and just realizing we had this just tapestry of sound and 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 audio and, and footage that we could kind of weave together just to try to bring this to life. It was just it was just great. And then the, what we would do was we would be in a Zoom with the person that we were interviewing, but then we would also be in a Google Doc and we would open the chat. <laughs> and so I'm in this closet inside of a bathroom inside of this cabin, and I've set up my mic and everything to record, which is a totally new thing for me. Um, I'm like 
making sure that I'm doing everything right. And so I would be doing the interview and everybody else would be on mute and they would be silent. But the person that I was interviewing would not know that I was getting little comments and little really push on this and wait, you have to ask that again so that they tell it as an actual story. All of these prompts from Samira and Derek to really make sure that I was actually getting the tape because I'm so used to interviewing people for print or interviewing people for a chat show and then you just kind of, it's so much different. It's so much lower key. You can just kind of like talk it through. But for audio, you need them to deliver things in like a very specific way so that later you can go in and cut it out and put it into your script and like the listener doesn't need anything else. They just need that person talking. And I just had no idea how to do that when I started. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Susan, I mean, look, she's a great interviewer and I think there are just a few things for audio that are different. And Samir and I both kind of come out of the school of like, you have to like make good tape. You don't just get good tape. You actually have to ask questions in a certain way and you have to press and, and you have to sort of do these little things. Like I call it the like Columbo technique where it's just like, you know, let me just, let me just ask that one more time where you, you sort of ask the question like four different ways to try and get the like emotional tape. And, and sometimes, you know, it just takes a while before the person kind of lets down their guard and, and really just starts to talk to you like a human being. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's just like the, the, the tools of the trade. And it, it did mean a lot of long interviews, probably longer. I feel like Susan was always like, I think we can wrap up now. And I'd be like, nah, let's go back and just try that one one more time. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I hope in the end it was worth it and it, and it paid off. The one thing that Derek made me do that I would never have done on my own, but I know that it paid off for the show, was just to actually keep pressing in some of those uncomfortable moments. Like I would pause and you could tell that like they want to slip away and Derek would be like, ask it again. I knew that he was there. I knew I would have to answer to him after the call. And so I would ask it again, even though I sometimes like was just like, oh, cringing in my head. So he really taught me how to get over myself, like to realize like it's not about how I feel in that moment. It's really about what we're capturing and and what's going to pay off later uh, for the show. The other thing that I would say that was so fun about being in the Google Doc together is that there would be some moments in an interview where the the person that we were interviewing would say something and we would all just react and just be like, oh my God, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. And the moment that I remember the, the most about us doing this is when we were interviewing Marie Wilkie Myers and she told us that she was the person on the cover of the handbook on abortion. Uh, that was, I, we had been passing around this book like for months at that point. Like I, I was so obsessed with the book. The cover was so interesting. And when she was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a photo of me. That's my dad posing as a doctor. That was a moment where we just all like lost it. It was like something, usually you go into an interview trying to be as prepared as, as possible and you want to know everything about the person. And we just didn't know that. And that was a total reveal in the middle of that interview. The chat went wild. (laughs) Yeah, that was really wild. I'm sitting there, I'm in a sweater and a mini skirt. I'm holding a Kleenex like I've been crying. I'm looking at my dad, you can see the back of his head and he's holding his stethoscope and I'm supposed to sit there and look worried like I'm the girl who needs the abortion, you know? So I thought I looked like death warmed over, which was dad's plan. And I said, dad, you can't use that. No, no, it's perfect. You look like you're in distress. How did you feel about that? Like, did people ever recognize you just from the cover? They did, and I was mortified because I thought it was an awful picture. 
to me, one of the most important things that I wanted to achieve with this show was not to just tell the story of the women who who won the right to abortion or even just the court. Like, there's no way to tell this story without talking about and to people who don't believe in the right to abortion, who who, who think that abortion is, like, really a moral issue. And so I went into it knowing and um, hoping to find somebody who would embody that and who would bring a story that people could not resist listening to and empathizing with. And so it was really a challenge to figure out, like, what is the story that we're going to tell about this side of the issue that will draw people in and will, like, kind of create some empathy for this side? And, you know, like I said, the issue is so polarized right now that it's it's so difficult. And so I one of my main goals for the show was to break through that and to to get people to think about it from from all sides. And so with Marie Wilkie Myers, I mean, I knew that both of her parents had passed away, so I knew that that wasn't an option. But um, I think I had come across in one of the memoirs that they had written uh, together the story of her coming home from college and and, um, presenting them with the idea to write the book. So I knew that she was influential in that way. And I had reached out to her and I hadn't heard back for a while and I had like kind of left her messages and I was getting pretty nervous about it. And then... I emailed her again, like kind of just on a different thread. And she replied immediately. And she was like, oh, I just didn't see your first email. Like, yeah, I'd be happy to talk. And she was incredibly gracious. Um, I got on the phone with her. I explained the project. I talked through what I would be interested in. And she was basically like, I don't really understand why you'd want to talk to me. But like, sure, I'll do it. And so I and I did prepare for that interview differently. I mean, As a journalist, you always know that you do have to ask the tough questions, but it was particularly difficult because it wasn't like I was kind of asking her to answer for her parents. So there was just that level of it being removed that was a little bit tough, but she was just, she was so generous with her time, so gracious with us, and I was really appreciative of that. No, I'm just laughing. It's like, I don't know why you'd want to talk to me. Uh, Maybe because you're on the cover of the handbook of abortion. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So for anyone who doesn't know, The Wilkies are a husband and wife pair. Jack Wilkie was a family medicine doctor and an obstetrician, and his wife Barbara was a nurse. Um, And they were this sort of interesting, uh, you know, early pro-life couple who were actually kind of got their start in public speaking by being uh, like sex positive (laughs) speakers in a certain way. They would go around to high schools and colleges and talk about, you know, the beauty of sex, but we're always very clear to say within marriage. Um, And I think, I believe a priest reached out to them and, you know, said, can you guys be, you know, the voices for this, for this movement? You are, you know, you're medical professionals. You're also incredibly, you know, charismatic do you think that this is something you could speak to? And they were kind of resistant at first. And then this is kind of where Marie comes in and comes home from college and says, you know, all my friends in college are talking about abortion. And why do you think it's such an issue? And why are you so against it? And her parents feel moved and motivated to write this book and then go on these, you know, big speaking tours uh, about the, you know, the dangers of abortion or the risks of abortion as they saw them um, and sort of this moral crusade in a certain way uh, where they they then, you know, sort of kick off what we now would think of as the pro-life movement. 
Yeah. So at this point, we're probably in late April, and we had we had done almost all of our interviewing. We were starting to cut the tape, and I was going through the process of, um, you know, really starting to write the scripts. We knew what our episodes were. We knew what we were trying to say in each one, and we were just getting to the point of, like, really writing it and then producing it. And um, it was actually, so it's early May, and I remember this night so clearly. I had been telling my friends what I had been working on, obviously, um, but we hadn't announced it publicly yet. And I I had just gotten home from work, and I was just, like, sitting on the couch, and I was about to stand up and make dinner. And I got a text from my friend being like, yo, is this real? And I had no idea what she was talking about. What she was talking about was this Politico story that was um, reporting on the leak of the Dobbs draft, uh, and that draft said that they were, you know, going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so I like jumped into Slack and I was talking to my writers who I normally edit and it was like, yeah, this is this is real. And we worked um kind of until two in the morning. And the next morning we got onto a meeting um with our team and we had, you know, we had been working on this for months together now. And I just remember at one point, like we all kind of sat there on the Zoom and Derek was like, let's pause for a second and say, like, how's everyone doing? And we just kind of all took a breath together and we're like, this is a lot. Like, this is really intense. Um, we had been working on it for such a long time that it felt sort of there's a way in which it felt very, very intimate and it also felt sort of removed. So there was just this moment of like, this is happening. This is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, it's just wild to think back to that, like 24 hours. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, for me, uh, once it was confirmed that this was, this was an authentic document. Um, I actually remember my, my wife just crying. Um, and it was really emotionally. I've got, I've got two, two, um, daughters and I think just starting to get a glimpse of like, oh, wow this really, I think is going to happen and this is going to be a, a different world. And that's why I think when I started that, that meeting the next day, I just like wanted to sort of take a moment to be like, I, I know we've been kind of running full tilt for months now trying to get this documentary made and, and, and have it ready to go. But it's just like, we're all humans. We're all kind of absorbing this news in, in, in different ways. And I just want to make sure that we sort of made, made space for that. But then I think to the team's credit, we also all really kind of had a kind of like renewed urgency behind the work and felt like, wait a minute, we're, we've actually been reporting and discovering these stories that I think could, you know, have a lot to contribute to this, this current conversation. And, and people need to like hear this and, and need to be reminded, I think, of the you know generation of women who went through this many decades ago. And so I, I think... I remember Sophie had like a rough draft of the trailer, thank goodness. So it was like basically ready to go. And we just scrambled and we all worked like around the clock to to get it out there as soon as we could. Yeah. One thing from that day, actually, I can't remember if I told you guys about this in the flurry of, of activity and craziness, but we had already decided that we wanted to use Robert Wheeler's photo of Shirley Wheeler for the primary art. And it was this like amazing photo of her on the beach She's got like got jeans on and a big and a bathing suit top, and she's just like hair in the wind, looks super powerful, and and is also this like really important person from our story. Um, but again, Robert Wheeler lives in a super rural area in Georgia, and he had you know I think sent us like a phone picture, uh, like a picture of the picture. Um, but we didn't have a high resolution version of it, and in order to we were like, oh, we have some time 
to make this art and to just get it all together. And then all of a sudden we had no time. And so I was calling print shops in the area, anyone who might be able to help us scan this photo, get a high resolution version. And I finally talked to this woman. And when I was presenting the urgency of what we were doing, the only way I could describe that was by saying, you know, this is related to the Dobbs leak from last night. We're working on a podcast about abortion. And so we're really trying to to get this out as soon as possible. Um, And abortion is such a fraught topic that I think you never know what someone's personal feelings are on it. And immediately she told me she was like, of course, I will help you. I have to tell you, my sister got an illegal abortion in the 1960s. um, And I know how scary this is. And I know how hard this is for a lot of women to be hearing today uh, that we could potentially be going back to this time. Honestly, it was a very emotional conversation that day. And I think we had all felt this kind of intensity and and kicking into gear, but also this emotional hangover from the night before and the morning of. And I I just felt very, very grateful for that kind of connection on such a crazy day. Yeah, so we we released the trailer, and I think that I can speak for kind of everyone um, when I say that one of the absolute funniest reactions that we got after we released the trailer was like, oh my God, so smart. They just decided to do this. And all of us were like, we've been working on this for so many months. Um, Yeah, so then it was basically just like full steam ahead. And it really didn't change what we were making. It just made it feel different, I think. Um, And I think Derek and Josh, you both talked about this a little bit, but we all constantly felt so surprised by the politics of the time and how they were different from the politics that we were living through now. And I think that for me, one of the main instances of that was just um, in this sort of (laughs) parasocial relationship I developed with Justice Harry Blackman, where, uh, (laughs) yeah, it's true, uh, where, you know, it, it Roe wasn't a partisan issue in this way. More Republicans supported abortion access than Democrats at the time. It was used as a political football. Um, one of the things that I love is that we actually used Nixon tapes in our season, even though season one about Watergate didn't do that. But, you know, Richard Nixon definitely saw the issue and was like, wow, p- some people really care about this. I can use that to my advantage. But, um, you know, we kept making the episodes and the thing that I felt so much loss around or the thing that I thought about so much was particularly how the court has changed and how the approach to deciding issues had changed. And so for me, Harry Blackman, when he was in his 60s, 70s, and 80s, he saw how meaningful it was to women. And he became this kind of extremely unlikely, like conservative, appointed by Republican Richard Nixon, justice who took up this mantle of of women's rights and like really defended it throughout his life. It was a decision that had to be made if the country was to go down the road toward the complete emancipation of women. Period. That ability to change particularly when you're older, just strikes me as so incredible. And it was really making that episode and thinking about what the court was like then and how they 
debated this issue and then watching what was happening with the court in June, we were really putting out these episodes in June while the court was putting out all of its decisions. And so it was that distance that was just something that every day I was coming in to do this. And and that was something that I felt really deeply. Yeah, it was just like the clock was ticking on when the Dobbs decision was was going to come down. And actually, there was a moment where I was like, shoot, I hope we get this thing out before that. Um, and I think we just beat it by like a two or three days. But I think, it, you know, just going back to what what Susan was saying about black men, I, one of the things that I found so remarkable about that episode was just his his approach to it, like literally going to the Mayo Clinic and trying to get as much information as he could about the history of abortion and looking for some kind of consensus and, and maybe compromise position that, you know, I think as one of our scholars says, you know, like they, they, they really thought they had solved this once and for all. Um, and then like three days later, seeing the Dobbs decision and seeing Alito just kind of trash like Roe and, you know, it's kind of, there's just this like real disconnect there. Um, and I think it also just, you sort of could feel like just how much the court has evolved and become even more polarized. You know, people are interested in history, they're interested in the resonances, but the connection between what was happening in that moment and what we had reported from the past was almost so direct and resonant that it was it was a little bit eerie and it was really intense for me to think about Shirley Wheeler. I think that when we released that episode, that story is so crazy. And the thing that I think is so interesting about Shirley is that she wasn't an activist, like she was just a regular person. Um, and so for me, one of the things that was so kind of eerie almost about it is that, you know, people really related to that episode. We talked about Shirley a lot. And then Basically, immediately, as soon as Dobbs happened, it felt like there were all of these cases that really reminded me of Shirley's. Because the thing about Shirley was that her story was really unique, and now it feels really common. The last couple of weeks were really intense, and we were really uh, like up against the gun trying to to get everything out. And I just, I just remember. There was just this moment when I think like Josh was like working on a Sunday, uh, sketching out like one of the acts of of episode four, and and he had found this like incredible detail about Sarah Weddington that she had been in this like women's basketball league in Texas where you could only take two dribbles and you couldn't like run a full court or something. It was just some insane little like quirky detail, but it also sort of spoke uh, to kind of the the, you know, resistance that, that women faced for, for so long. And it, but just, it was, it's like things like that, like everyone pulled together. And when I listen to these episodes now, it's like, I hear like this incredible little bit of archival tape that Sophie dug up. And I, and you know, the things that like Josh added in, in the, the original research that, that, that Susan did. And another one of our colleagues we haven't mentioned yet, Sol Worthen, who also helped a lot with research and, and fact checking. And then of course, Samira's beautiful musical sound design and scoring it was just a, a special kind of team that that came together, almost like a like an Ocean's Eleven type assembly is, is what it kind of felt like. <laughs> Everyone sort of had like their their specialized role, and you know, um, not to like make it too grandiose, but it, it really did feel like we just had a chance to to make something that would speak to the moment. And um, I'm just so gratified that people have listened and recognized it. The night that we were tracking the last episode was um, a Friday. 
night and we were actually in the office at like midnight on a Friday. And right now I'm in the same studio talking on the same mic that I tracked everything on. And it was the first time that both Samira and Sophie were on the other side of the booth recording. Um, And just being able to make that show with these two women and to be in that moment together, the three of us, was just one of the moments I'll remember for the rest of my life. Thanks, Susan. And, and you cried a lot. <laughs> and I cried a lot because I have a parasocial relationship with Justice Blackman. <laughs> Very emotional. Thanks for listening to the story of how we created Slow Burn Roe v. Wade. To binge the full season and hear five all-new extra episodes with new interviews and perspectives about what might happen next in the fight over legal abortion, make sure you listen on Apple Podcasts or go to apple.co slash showoftheyear2022. We'll put that link in our show notes. This extra episode of Slow Burn was produced by me, Derek John, and Adrian Bain. We had mixing help from Kevin Bendis. Merritt Jacob is our senior technical director. Our theme music was composed by Alexis Quadrado. Derek Johnson did our cover art based on a photo provided by Robert Wheeler. Slowburn is a production of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. We also receive support from the International Women's Media Foundation. Special thanks to Katie Rayford, Bill Carey, Caitlin Schneider, Ben Richmond, Andrew Harding, Susan Matthews, Sol Worthen, Samira Tazari, Sophie Summergrad, Josh Levine, Hilary Fry everyone at Apple Podcasts, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>